Our scripture this morning is 1 John, chapter 1, the first four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Bow with me. Father, as we look into your word, we pray it would cut into our lives. It would be that two-edged sword that would cut into our lives, Father, and change us for your glory. We thank you for each other. We thank you for this time. And we do so in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Last week, Matt opened by uh, talking about his love of sports. Made me think of something that Marshall Shelley wrote about Harry Carey. You don't need to know either one of them, so uh, you'll, you'll pick up about Harry Carey as Marshall Shelley writes. Harry Carey, the 84-year-old newscaster, sportscaster, the voice of the Cubs died just before spring training in 1998. <clears throat> Harry wasn't slick, often mispronouncing names, an unabashed fan. He'd, he'd cheer each home run with, it might be, it could be, it is, holy cow! Do you remember him saying it? Shelley says he was every man. Even his theology came from the bleacher seats. In his book, Holy Cow, he wrote, I'm not a religious man. I've made some mistakes in my life. Dutchie is my third wife. And I've paid a lots of alimony in my time. But I've always believed in Almighty God. I've always believed that if you live your life as a decent person, the empire in the end will say you did it right. Shelley says, while there may be more to Harry's belief, this statement reflects the, the four tenets of today's street-level everyman theology, belief in God Almighty, open admission of mistakes, a, a self-defined decent life, and four, the expectation that at Judgment Day, the umpire will call you safe. This is exactly what I believed before I came to the Lord. Before I was confronted with the gospel, its message, its meaning, its purpose. What about you? What is it you believe? 
How would you define faith, uh, your faith? What do you believe and why? Today we begin this new study in 1 John. It ought to be a good study for us. It addresses where we are in our world today, uh, what we believe and why, what, what it is that governs our lives and our relationships. John writes to people struggling with life. You, you had struggles in life? Last year, this year? Struggles? They were struggling. They were struggling in their relationships. Many of them were dealing with discouragement. And John speaks about how, how their faith ought to play into it all. Right off the top, John specifies that a, a Christian faith isn't a pedestrian kind of faith or, or what Shelley calls an, an everyman theology. It's not something defined on the, on, on the street corner or down in the local coffee house or out in the middle of the baseball diamond. Quite the opposite. Our faith is a, a specific kind of faith, a deliberate kind of faith, a, a vibrant faith that is life-changing, a life-changing kind of faith, a, a faith that's rooted in the Lord God himself. Now, now, what does this mean? What am I talking about? Well, faith, as the Apostle John uses it, wasn't derived from the world around him. It didn't originate to satisfy his own personal desires. It, it was specific and it had certain parameters to it. So off the top, that, that opening question, what kind of faith do you have? Ought to be relevant, shouldn't it? Ought to be personal. A survey taken this year, 2021, found that 43% of millennials don't know and don't care whether God exists or not. That's, that's quite a finding, isn't it? Quite a statement. 43% don't know and don't care if God exists. He is simply irrelevant to who they are and what they do. Another survey, survey found that over 60% of born-again Christians, you and me, 60% of us, between 18 and 39, say that Jesus isn't the only way to heaven. That Muhammad, Buddha, whoever, whatever, are also valid paths of salvation. They believe faith is whatever you want it to be. I don't know uh, how many statistics like this come across my desk. It's troubling. There's been a, a, a paradigm shift in in our world, in our churches, and in our theology. And this is why what John talks about in this letter is so important. John opens, verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which he, we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, 
We've seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Faith today, uh, for the most part, is a, a subjective faith, a, a personal faith. Jesus as I feel he ought to be. Look, that's the word so many of us use so often when it comes to faith. Feel. And this is where so many of us are in our assumptions. Certainly as a society, John is writing to believers, to the church. I'm speaking to believers in the church. Interesting he would write this, isn't it? The importance of Jesus. The average American believer or not sees faith as, as intensely personal, ultra-private, and, and, and self-defined. Intensely personal, ultra-private, and self-defined. And it's always supported by the, the philosophical assumption that no one dare challenge such a premise because I have a right to believe this. It's what I want to believe and I have, have a right to believe it. And then that word I feel, or that phrase I feel. Down in my heart, I feel it down in my heart. You've heard it, I'm sure you have. How would you respond to this? I feel 2 plus 2 equals 4. Now, I, I wouldn't force that on anybody else, but deep down in the core of my being, I feel 2 plus 2 equals 4. How would you respond to that? How about this? 2 plus 2 equals 4, regardless of how you feel about it. It's a fact. It's a mathematically proven fact. Whether you like it or not, your feelings are irrelevant, totally irrelevant. Two plus two equals four. Had the biblical writers lived to see our day, they would have cringed. Uh, what so many of us believe today about faith is so contrary to what the Bible teaches about faith. As we study through this epistle, we will hear John say some, uh, some profound things, things like chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Folks, our faith is not a guess-so, a, a hope-so, or a feel-so kind of faith. It's a know-so kind of faith, a forensically verifiable kind of faith. John is clear in his thoughts. I write these things that you may know you have eternal life. Yes, the cold hard facts of faith is that God has revealed his truth to us. His objectively, objectively knowable truth. Truth that changes our lives. Truths that mark a, a huge difference between what we believe and what the world believes. Truth that contrasts the, the, the false beliefs of a, of a, of a feel-good world. Truths that bring confidence and security. Truths that bring peace and joy. Now remember who John was. He was an apostle. One of the twelve called out by Jesus himself. 
As such, he was uniquely qualified to speak firsthand of the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks of things that are uh, historically verifiable about Jesus Christ because he saw them, he heard them, he was there. He was with Jesus in his life and his teaching. He was with Jesus in his death. Did you know that John was the only apostle that went to the cross? None of the other ones did. He saw it. He was there. It was from the cross that John gave his, that Jesus gave Mary, his mother, to John. History says that Mary was still with John when he wrote on the Isle of Patmos when he wrote uh, the book of Revelation. That's a huge statement, isn't it? He had been there, first person present. He knew what Jesus taught and what he didn't teach. This is the point of those first two verses. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with with our own eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. John preaches Jesus Christ. Something far removed from the pedestrian kind of gospel so prominent in our society today. He preached Jesus Christ. And what John found in Jesus Christ changed him. It changed him. And he wants it to change us too. He wants us to find the relevance, the truth, the life-changing relevance the life-changing truth for ourselves. Think through what John says here. Cognitively work through it, process it, realize its message. Everything hangs on a proper understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. It's in him that we believe. It's in him that we trust. John opens this letter much in the same way he does his gospel, uh, the fourth book of the New Testament, by calling our attention to the decidedly unique nature of Jesus. Why? Because who Jesus is defines our faith. It sets our salvation, and it determines the way we live life, the way we do life, the way we go about our relationships. Who is Jesus is the defining question for our lives. It's a defining question for the ages. It's the defining question of our faith. Who is Jesus? Yes, John brings up some profound things. Look at chapter 2, verse 22. And the importance of knowing Jesus rightly. Who is the liar, he says. It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Everything hinges on a proper understanding 
of who Jesus was. Everything. Everything hangs on a proper understanding of Jesus. It marks the difference between a saving relationship and playing religion. Matt brought up playing religion. We don't play religion. We're not here to feel good about ourselves. We're here to learn of Jesus Christ. He is God eternal come in the flesh. This is what we believe. This is what John is here teaching. And this is what makes a holy difference in our lives. Compare this to what John says in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. This is how you recognize the Spirit of God. <coughs> every, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming and is now, and now is already in the world. Powerful words, heavy words, important words. We've already looked at verse 5, verse 13. Look at verse 20. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. You want understanding? You want to learn stuff? You want to know stuff? It's yours in Jesus Christ. And has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John's theology is centered on Jesus Christ. The reason is simple. Everything rides on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the, the object of our faith. It is in him that we trusted. It is in him that we have salvation. Not in ourselves, not in our church, not in our society, not in our friends, not in our religion. It's in him that we have salvation. Listen to Warren Worsby. Men have looked for reality and satisfaction in wealth, thrills, conquest, power, learning, and even in religion. There's nothing wrong with these experiences, except by themselves they never really satisfy. Wanting something real and finding something real are two different things. Like a child eating cotton candy at the circus. Many people who expect to bite into something real, end up with a mouthful of nothing. They waste priceless years on empty substitutes for reality. So let me ask you, are you dealing with Jesus Christ as he is? Or are you dealing with something else? Jesus, as, as you want him to be. Religion, as you want it to be. Faith, as you feel it ought to be. What are you dealing with? You're here. What are you dealing with? What, it is, what is it you believe in? John is specific. The, the gospel is not some vain assumption bound up in... Uh, a personal understanding, a, a personal faith. Far from it, as we shall discover throughout this letter, it is 
the relevant, life-changing revelation of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as such, it is, it, it is decidedly public and in no way private. Decidedly public in the sense that the gospel changes our relationships in two ways. Matt talked about it last week. It changes our relationship with God the Father on the vertical. And it changes our relationships with each other on the horizontal. It changes our relationships. Are you listening to what I just said? Jesus came to change our relationships, to, to change the way we, we do relationships. Why? Because it changes us, who we are. It doesn't leave us where we are. It changes who we are. Jesus took on flesh. He was a, a, a baby born in Bethlehem. Now listen to this, expressly for the purpose of changing your relationships. How? By changing you. By the way, this is why we're here as a church. This is what the church is all about. It's all about relationships, holy relationships. Have you ever thought about that? Critically interacted with theology like this. Why did Jesus come? Why are we here as a local church? Why are you here? What is salvation all about in our lives? What is our purpose in life to be? And most importantly, how does all this happen? Move down to verses 3 and 4. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Real believers who possess the real Jesus seek holy relationships, godly relationships. What John speaks of here as fellowship. Did you see that word? So that you also may have what? Fellowship with us. Relationships defined by Jesus Christ who came, who, who died, who was buried, who rose again on the third day, and then 40 days later ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God and make intercession for you and me. Huge thinking. Huge understanding. Faith is all about fellowship. It's all about communion because we have become one with Jesus Christ himself. We have a relationship with Jesus Christ himself. We are united with the Father through the cross of Christ. We have become his children. I don't know if that's an important phrase to you. It is to me. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. I was never adopted by my stepfather, but I wish I had. He was more a father than my real father. God the Father has brought us into his family. We're adopted into his family. We're one of his children. And we're being changed by his truth. Every day as we come to that truth. Verse 3, second part. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write, we write this to make our joy complete. That inclusion of the word joy is interesting, isn't it? it? When I first read it, I thought, well, that's so out of place, what it's all about. Joy. 
satisfaction, fulfillment. You want it, this is where you find it. This is what Wiersbe was talking about. You can look wherever you want, but this is where you're going to find it, and this is the only place you're going to find it. Now, I hope you understand this doesn't mean that everything's going to run smoothly in your life, in your relationships, the moment you accept Jesus Christ. Complications and controversies happen because our relationships are still gummed up by sin. We're still battling sin. We've not been perfected. We're not talking about some idealistic utopianism. We're discussing real life where real people bring real world problems with them into their real and life-changing faith. The gospel is public and not private. Those are huge words in our world today, aren't they? Religion is my personal religion. It's private. The, the problem is, people who take this kind of stand have never been confronted with Scripture, what it says. Uh, oh, they think they have, or they may think they have, but they haven't. And they have never really been confronted with the revelation of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning's text is short. It's only four verses. Scan them and, and count the times the word proclaim is used. Three times in four verses. How many times is the word fellowship used? Twice in four verses. How many times is the word we used in four verses? Nine times. How do you think John understood the life of, pay, of faith as, as, as private, as personal, as silent, as hidden, or as something with interpersonal implications, public implications, implications to be proclaimed in the lives we live. Regardless of what people say, our faith is not personal and it's not private. The idea of a, a private faith is nowhere found in the biblical record. Exactly the opposite. Jesus was revealed so that he could and would be proclaimed in the lives we live. With our mouths, yes, but in the lives we live, in the changed lives we live. You probably, probably have never heard of Christian Smith. He's a a sociologist, he's also a, a reformed theologian. His uh, faith uh, defines his uh, sociology. But listen to this, he, he summarized the prevalent concepts of God. He, he says that uh, most young evangelicals believe in what could be described as a moral therapeutic Deism. Moral uh, implies that God wants us to be nice, to play nice as we interact with others. He rewards the good and withholds from the naughty. Therapeutic means that God wants us to be happy. Everything is to be therapeutic, resulting in our happiness. Deism means that God is not really present. He, he's distant and not involved in our daily lives. God may get involved occasionally, but on the whole, he functions like an idea and not a person actively involved in our world. By the way, 
this theological perspective, this, this moral therapeutic deism, is also called the Santa Claus God. But guess what? Says Smith, we cannot grow in our relationship with God when we insist on dealing in relating to God, not as he is, but, we, but as we think he should be. This is why it's so important for us to surrender to God as he is. If we don't surrender to God as he is, we will have a God existing only in our own imaginations. And embarrassingly, our American God is an obese, jolly toy maker who works one day a year and is otherwise disconnected from us the rest of the year. Yes, the most common concept Americans have of God today most closely resembles Santa Claus. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Where are you in this? Where is it that your faith resides? In a concoction of your own mind, in, in a vain fantasy? Jesus opens his letter as he does his gospel by proclaiming who Jesus is. Why? Because biblically faith is based on objective truth and not subjective whim. John proclaims that Jesus came to be who he is and to do what he did. John clearly spells out that our calling in Jesus is not personal, it's not private, it's objective truth. Cold, hard, forensic fact, and as such, scientific fact. We talk a lot about science these days, don't we? Well, it's a scientific fact, forensic fact. We proclaim to you, he says, what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Is your faith pedestrian and private? A faith where you live the way you want to live, or do you believe in the real Jesus? The one in whom the gospel is found, the one who came to change our lives, to, to change our relationships. Where is your faith? Yellow and Pink is a children's book by William Stig. It tells the story of two wooden figures. Uh, one is bright yellow and the other is vibrant pink, who woke up one day while laying out in the sun. They were laying on some newspaper out in the hot sun. Still groggy, yellow uh, sits up and asks pink, uh, do you know what we're doing here? Pink looks himself over, sees how he's formed and how functional he is, and he concludes, someone must have made us. Yellow uh, is taken back. He says, I say we're an accident. And then he outlines a, a hypothetical scenario on how it all might have happened. A, a branch might have broken off a tree and fell on a rock that split it in two, making the legs. And then it was blown by the wind down over the rocks, and it was shaped, and eventually it came to rest where a, a woodpecker poked the two eyes in. 
with enough time, says Yellow, uh, a thousand, a million, maybe two and a half million years, lots of things could happen. Why not us? And so the two puppets uh, debate the issue of their origins. They go back and forth, what they're, what they're doing there and why. Their argument is cut short when out from a nearby house, a man appears who walks over and picks up the, the two marionettes and he looks at them, he touches them and he says, ah, nice and dry. Then he tucks them under his arm and he proceeds to walk back into his house. Peeking out from underneath this fellow's arm, Yellow whispers to Pink, who is this guy anyway? This is John's point, isn't it? Who is Jesus? If he is, as the Bible claims, God in the flesh who came to change our lives, we need to, to sit up and listen. We need to quit telling him what we want and start listening to what he has to say about how our lives are to be. I don't know where this message finds you, John's message. If you're here without Christ, I hope you come forward and, uh, to Matt or to Paul or to me or to Mike or one of the ladies, Diane, Kathy, Susan. Come to them and talk to them about the Lord. We want you to leave knowing who Jesus is. And if you're here like most of us, already saved, realize that Jesus Christ didn't come to leave our lives the way they are. He came to change us, to make a difference, a holy difference. Father, we close this morning thanking you for your word. Thanking you that we could be here. Thanking you for John's message. I pray, Father, that it will change our lives. Make of us something different. Change our relationships with, with you and with our fellow human beings, Father. With our spouses, with our children, with our friends, with our workmates. That we will be changed and they will see the difference that Jesus Christ makes. It's in his name that I pray. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.